Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Amen. Well, we're uh, celebrating Easter and celebrating with our kids and uh, thinking about what that all looks like and what that means. And maybe you've gotten tired of hearing this. Uh, Maybe it's become old to you. Uh, But seven months ago, uh, our leadership team got together and uh, we began to think about and pray about uh, writing sermons for 2020. And, uh, you know, we didn't think about uh, the coronavirus seven months ago and we didn't think about sheltering Uh, at home, and we didn't think about being safe at home, but we did think together that it might be important at Easter to kick off a brand new series called Together, Uh, and uh, and it seems to me that's such an ironic thing, but it it resonates in this way with me. We are together in this. We're going to get through this together. We're, We're not alone, and and I think it matters so much. The vision of the kingdom of God is that we are an interdependent community. Now, I don't know about you, but I was brought up to believe in independence. I was brought up to believe, and I'm not blaming my parents, but but I really believed it was a great virtue to be able to take care of myself, that the goal of my life, that that the ideal kind of representation of maturity was when I became self-sufficient, when I became independent, when I could sustain my own emotional needs and my own uh, financial needs and my own, uh, you know, relational needs, when I, when I got to that place where I was self-sufficient. And now I recognize that uh, that's really not true at all. In fact, uh, some of us, we, we live over there in that space of independence and we do a lot of things in our own head and we do a lot of things kind of in that way. And then some of us swing all the way over to the other side and we become codependent. And there's a part of us that emotionally really depends on others to fulfill us. We, we need someone to complete us. We are feeling that there is a symbiotic nature to relationships. In other words, I can't live without this. I can't live without this emotional support. I can't live without this encouragement. I can't be fulfilled I can't be who I was meant to be unless other people help me get there. Now, the Scripture talks about a very different kind of living. And how the biblical understanding is, is it talks about it in terms of covenant. But how we would think about it is in terms of interdependence. It is a choice we make that is between independence, kind of being self-sustaining and not needing anyone, and being codependent, being dependent on others to fulfill our deepest needs. Over here, we choose to depend on each other because we recognize that we were built to do this together. We were created to do this in community. We're not okay being independent, and we're not okay being codependent. And so this little series is going to explore what that looks like and what that means and the shocking nature in which Scripture really supports this idea of interdependence. And today we're talking about what it means to be together in resurrection and how that fits together. Now, I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this, but um, sometimes I really struggle with uh, different passages of Scripture. And uh, I know that's silly, I know that God is smarter than me, 
And I know that the scripture is more authoritative than me, but as the person who stands up here week after week and sort of acts as an apologist for God and for His Word, uh, sometimes I go through seasons when I'm really struggling with certain passages of scripture. And so one that's been on my mind and I've been struggling with in particular lately is this one's from Hebrews chapter 4, which I really love. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I read that, <clears throat> and I start to think that there's a lot of ways in which I live on the far side of Easter. Uh, back, back there where there's a whole lot of questions that are unanswered, where there's a lot of things that are promised but not yet fulfilled. And so, so while I really like this passage of Scripture, I'll be honest with you, I really struggle with it. And I'll tell you specifically where I struggle. I, I struggle when it says that Jesus was tempted in every way as I am tempted. I got to tell you, that is hard for me to get my brain around. I I mean, was Jesus as petty as I can be? Was Jesus ever anxious the way I'm anxious? Was he ever outright fearful? Was Jesus ever tempted by the baser realities of life? I, I just have a hard time really believing and embracing that Jesus was tempted in every way as I am tempted. Just me? Because I really think that for most of us, we read a passage like that and we think somehow metaphorically or theologically, somehow Jesus must have been tempted, but has he doubted like I doubt? Has he felt lost like I feel lost? I mean, this is Jesus. And then I recognize... In a very specific way, there is a story that unfolds. And in that story, it it is so fundamental to human existence that when Jesus walks that journey and we're told vividly about how it works, then I can begin to grasp that, that that temptation touches every single other part of life. That he was tempted in every way as I am tempted. The story is recorded for us. In Matthew chapter 26, listen to how it unfolds. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for just one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and he prayed, My father... If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and he went away once more and he prayed the third time, saying the same thing. 
And then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, Are you sleeping still, resting? Look, the hour was come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. At some point, Jesus came to this moment in life when with great passion, passion that's flowing out of him, he, he kneels and he prays to the Father, I don't like what's happening. I want you to change the way it works. That in this moment, overwhelmed by sorrow, Jesus is thinking about the journey ahead of him, no doubt. But also we're highlighted in the story. It's not just about this coming cross and crucifixion and all of those pieces. It's about the fact that, that those he's invested in, those he's loved, his friends, those that he's, he's poured into, he's not getting anything back. They can't even stay awake at his moment of greatest need. They, they can't even offer up the slightest bit of support or friendship. And he goes back to the Father and there's this anguished prayer. Let this bitter cup pass from me. As he thinks about the implications of this moment, as he thinks about the fact that those that he has opposed are going to win, that, that those with their messed up minds and their messed up systems and their, their processes of brutality and injustice and, 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 and unfairness, their privileged life, they're going to win. They're going to they're somehow reap something they haven't sown. And Jesus is going to reap something he hasn't sown. And he doesn't like it and he doesn't want it and he doesn't think it's fair and it's not okay. And he pleads to the Father. On the far side of Easter... There is Jesus pleading with God to change things, to make something different. I think in this moment, Jesus obviously believes that God has a plan. He obviously understands that this is a part of what is supposed to happen. He's talked about it openly. It's not like he doesn't believe God is there. It's not like he doesn't believe ultimately God has something going on. It's not even like he doesn't understand that at this darkest moment is actually the moment of God's destiny of salvation. This is the ultimate fulfillment. And all of that knowledge about God's will and God's promise doesn't stop him from praying with great passion in that moment. Let this cup pass from me. And in that way, he was tempted in every way as we are tempted. I pray the first part of that prayer with great skill. I got the first part of that prayer on the far side of Easter. I got that prayer down. It's the second part of the prayer that's harder for me. I don't know about you, but it, it seems to me, and I, I wouldn't blame this on anybody, but I, I, if I'm honest, and I like to be sometimes, if I'm honest, I think a lot of the things for which I pray have to do with the first part of the prayer on the far side of Easter. It has to do with this process in which I am saying, God, I don't want this. I don't want these circumstances. I don't want it to work this way. I want this to change. Change this. Please change this. Please change this. And I wouldn't blame my parents and I wouldn't blame 
uh, growing up in the church. I don't think no, anybody taught me this in Sunday school. I didn't learn it in grad school. I didn't learn it in, uh, you know, in my college classes. I, I don't know where I got it, but somewhere I believe this. If I pray right, if I ask right, that somehow I'll get God into my circle of cooperation. And it's more than that. I believe if I live right, if I get it right, if I do it right, that somehow I I grew up in the church with an impression that if I got my part right, that God would give me the desires of my heart. And so I've spent an an entire lifetime trying to figure out how to get it right enough so that I could pull God into this circle of cooperation where He would do whatever it is that I need Him to do because I am praying the prayer that Jesus prayed. I, I don't want this, I want this. I've been around long enough to have been handed a number of books over the years to be involved in a number of studies over the years in which people are saying, hey, here's a better way to pray. Here's a better wording for your prayer. And when I read those books and I'm involved in those studies, it comes down to this. That somewhere there's a belief that if we, that if we get it right and that, that we say it right, that we, if we just form the words in the right way, then God irresistibly will have to be in the circle of cooperation. He'll have to do whatever it is we've asked Him to do because we've asked it in exactly the right way with exactly the right nuances. We're getting it right and we're saying it right. In 30 whatever years of ministry, I've also heard, felt, seen, experienced, walk this journey in this way. If you believe it right, if you have enough faith. If your faith is strong enough and if it's radical enough, then you can get God pulled into this circle of cooperation. So if I, if I do it right and I say it right and I believe it right, then God is forced to do. He, he has no choice but to enter this circle of cooperation with me. And if I'm honest, how much time and energy am I spending in my life and in my journey? How much time and energy is the church spending in its time and in its energy, trying to get God to cooperate, trying to get God to do this thing that we want Him to do because we're all praying the prayer from the far side of Easter. Let this cup pass from me. This gets really personal. I mean, I, I want God to cooperate and change things about me, about my life, about my story, about my inner world, about how my emotions work, about how my brain works about how my relationships work. I'm trying to get God into this circle of cooperation where there's no bitter cups. And then I think about my, my family and my friends, and I, I don't want them to have bitter cups either. And then when I, I, I think about my children and my grandchildren, I want to figure out, I want to figure out how I can live it, say it, believe it in a way that the bitter cups pass me by. And that's life on the far side of Easter. And when I start to think about all of that, I begin to realize that Jesus on the far side of Easter 
is praying this passionate prayer. And in this sense, he was tempted in every way as I'm tempted. But then something happens. That on the far side of Easter, there is a kind of hanging on and a kind of bargaining and a kind of, you know, sort of setting ourselves up so that we can sort of navigate and manipulate ourselves into the life that we desire. And Jesus is right there praying with great passion. We're told that he prays with such great passion. He, he's sweating. This prayer is coming from his deepest place. But then he prays another prayer. And on the far side of Easter up to this moment, there's a kind of hanging on. And then in the garden, there's a letting go. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Because in that hanging on, in that bargaining, in that asking for the bitter cup to go away, in that being tempted in every way as we are tempted, it is this moment, this moment of letting go and saying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That is the very passageway to Easter. Without this moment of letting go, there can't be the rest of what happens. There can't be the next part of the story. We can't get from Good Friday to Easter Sunday morning without this moment, without this prayer in the garden, which is hanging on and bargaining and tempted in every way as we are tempted. But this prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, is the passage to Easter. It's what makes it all possible. It's what, it's what brings new life, and it's what brings real hope, and it, it's what brings final resolution. It's what brings ultimate peace. It's the thing that leads to this other thing, this resurrection moment. Now, I want to ask you a question, and that, that question is, and I'm going to read you the Easter story, but that question is this, how did Jesus rise from the dead who is responsible for this moment so with that in mind as you kind of think about it listen to Matthew 28 after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb and there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow and the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And then the angels said to the women, don't be afraid. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay and then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. And now I have told you. And so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them, greetings, he said. And they came to him and they clasped his feet and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers go to, get, to go to Galilee and there they will see me. You, you can't leave the story in the Garden of Gethsemane. You, you have to let it unfold. You have to let it go on through, uh, you know, the events of Good Friday and, and Holy Saturday and into Easter Sunday morning. You, 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 you can't get to the new life and the redemption and the ultimate peace and the grace and the purpose and life together unless you let it all unfold, unless you let it all play out, unless you patiently wait for all of the pieces to come together 
And so, who raised Jesus from the dead? How did he end up rising from the dead? Be careful how you answer. Acts 2.32, God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God. And he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you, what you now see and hear. So God raised Jesus from the dead. And the Holy Spirit was involved in the process. Don't worry, this is going somewhere. This is that moment in every sermon where you go, I think he's lost it. Romans 6, 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. Galatians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So, so the biblical story says that God raised Jesus from the dead. This is going somewhere. But that's not the whole story. It seems that Jesus was doing some of the work himself. John 2, 18. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you give us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. John 10, 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Now there's more. The idea that we are invited, that we are encouraged to be a part, to live in the post-resurrection Easter reality. Romans 8:11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. 1 Peter 3:18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He put to death in the body, but he was put to death in the body, but was made alive in the spirit. So here's what I want you to understand. On the far side of Easter, Jesus is praying this prayer. He's praying this bargaining, let this bitter cup fast from me, but he, but he gets to the place where he can pray the next part of the prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And it is this prayer that, that opens the passage towards Easter. And then in great interdependence, it is God the Father, it is Jesus himself, it is the work of the Spirit that allows this resurrection moment to take place. But it's not just God and the, the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit raising Jesus from the dead. It is you and I participating vicariously in this new life that that. that as we make this journey, as we pray that the bitter cup passes, but finally come to the moment where we are no longer hanging on, where we're finally letting go, that in this great interdependence, the Holy Spirit, the power of God, the sacrifice of Christ lives in us. It's what Paul is driving at. It's what he spends so much time talking about. 2 Timothy 2.11. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. So here's the deal. I am betting. Because you're like me. And because Jesus lived and walked this pattern. That there are places right now where you're living on the far side of Easter. 
where everything that happens in your life is centered around this prayer. Change it, God. Stop it, God. Do something different, God. If I get it right, if I get it all right, if I do it right, if I, if I live right, God will surely enter the circle of cooperation with me. If I speak it right, if I say the right prayer, if I believe the right things, if I believe with all my heart, if I believe hard enough, and we're bargaining we're bargaining over finances and jobs and health situations and circumstances. But the path to resurrection is letting go. The, the path to new life is, is releasing it. Praying with all of our heart this, this truth. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Letting go of the fear and having the courage to say those words and mean them. I can trust Him. I can let go. I can let Him be in charge. I can let Him take over. I don't have to manipulate. I, I, I don't have to bargain. I don't have to live in this place where I'm constantly on the far side of Easter. I'm invited to live on this side of Easter where the promises get fulfilled, where there is new life, where, where even the things that seem so tragic and horrible are redeemed into this place where we live. We really live. There really is peace. There really is life. And I think God wants it for every one of us. He was tempted in every way as we are tempted, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us come confidently before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy in our time of need. You and I, we're not invited to, to vicariously celebrate Easter. This resurrection is for us. This is about you and I being raised to new life, entering into the garden and praying that prayer on the far side of Easter. Some of us were just living on the far side of Easter. Come on over on this side. The resurrection happened. We got through it. The bitter cup came and the bitter cup went. And that's a promise for you and it's a promise for me. We're not going to live on the far side of Easter. We get to move through this passage into new life where nothing can steal away our peace and nothing can steal away our life, but we can't do it alone. We do it in interdependency on the power of the Father and of the Holy Spirit and the, the sacrifice of Christ. And we do it in support interdependently with one another because this is a community of faith in which we depend on each other, in which we love each other. Nowhere is that more illustrated than in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And so in a moment, we're going to share together communion. I'm going to invite the band to come back to the platform. And, and I just want to ask you a couple of things. First, I want to remind you to bring together your communion elements. And I want to say this, sometimes in different traditions... The elements for communion are treated differently. It just seems to me that on this occasion and under these circumstances that it has always been the Holy Spirit that has sanctified these elements and made them proper for our use in this moment. And that's what we trust in together today. I don't care if it's a piece of matzah and 
wine. I don't care if it's grape juice and a wheat thin. I don't care if it's a piece of a donut. I believe that in these moments, we are invited together to experience the fullness of the Easter celebration. And I just want to ask you a few questions. In, in some specific ways, in your own life and in your own journey, where are you living on the far side of Easter? Where are you still in that mode, that exhaustive mode of thinking? <laughs> if I do it all right, if I get it all right, if I act right, I'll pull God into my circle of cooperation. If I say it right, if I pray it right, if I believe it right. This morning I just, where are you living on the far side of Easter? And then the second question would simply be this. Wouldn't you like to move to this side of Easter? Wouldn't you just like to stop bargaining and, and, and just say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And in that simple prayer, we, we move from living on the far side of Easter to living on this side of Easter. Interdependent on the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the sacrifice of Christ in us to raise us to life, to really live, to be free at last. That's what these elements represent, that the sacrifice of Christ once and for all brings us to this side of Easter where we can, <laughs> by proof of the living Christ, trust that God will see us through from the agony of the garden to the joy of new life. He will see us through. We will get from there to this side of Easter. And we take in these elements in celebration of that reality. And so I just invite you to gather around. We're going to pray a blessing over the elements. God, we give you thanks. How powerful it is that you are the agent that sanctifies and prepares these gifts. There was nothing particularly sacred about that bread on that first celebration of the Lord's Supper. It wasn't until you held it in your hands, it wasn't until you blessed and broke it that it became a sacred moment. And so as we hold elements in our hands scattered across this community, perhaps across the country and world, whatever elements are being laid before you, we invite you to come and to bless them. We invite you to come and inhabit them. We invite you to come and remind us that on the far side of Easter, there were some things we were afraid of. There were some things that we didn't want to just let go of. And we've hung on a lot and we've bargained a lot. But these elements represent a sacrifice, a willingness to say out loud, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And those words were the very, the very spark that ignited 
the possibility of Easter, new life, real peace, no fear. And we give you thanks. We prepare our hearts for this table by confessing to you our sins. We are so thankful that your word teaches that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us, but also to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. For that we give you thanks. We dedicate these elements to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you, and be thankful. And now, God, we are so thankful for the truth. You were willingly tempted in every way as we are tempted. We celebrate, we let go. We gather together on this Easter and we celebrate with all of our hearts. For those who need continued prayer, we open up the prayer room. We, we pray that you would bless those conversations and prayer times that are going to take place right now. And we ask you to continue with us as we seek you to seek to be the people in the church in interdependency and covenant that you've called us to be. Lead us in this celebration as we respond to your word together. I pray your blessing and celebration. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Happy Easter. God bless you. Let's worship. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.